Anan area is where they say the ancient Assyrians are. And they cite the ass put on the front of Syrian to call them Assyrians, but originally they were Syrians, and then the Assyrian appellation was named or put with it a little later on. So most of them think that the ancient Assyrians are still primarily within the nation of Syria today, which we are currently bombing uh, for geopolitical reasons of our own, namely oil and power within the Middle East. The only ones I find, scholars posted on the internet, who try to prove that Germany is ancient Assyria have some connection with the Worldwide Church of God, if you can believe that. And they use little scraps here and there to try to show that connection. Why is it that that cannot be found with other scholars, and they can't trace the movements of people, because there are, are scholars out there who have spent their lives trying to trace where peoples have gone. Now, it is a very, very difficult study. Let's start there. It is very difficult to determine. And those scholars have not come up with the knowledge that Western Europe and America and people who have gone to New Zealand, uh, Australia, South Africa, and so on from Western Europe are Israelites. That is information they have not come up with. Now, Church of God writers uh, can see that is true, and I think that the flow of events and where you see Bibles and so-called Christianity indicate where Israel is. It is the Western European and American peoples, primarily Canada, who have spread what they call Christianity and the Bible to other parts of the world. That's where it derived from. That's where it came from. Uh, we still get requests from people, primarily in Africa at least, for Bibles. And that is where Christianity, as professed around the world, came from, was from Israel. Well, you'd think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, that makes sense that uh, it would be Israelites who would spread it. It wouldn't be Hindus, it wouldn't be Buddhists, it wouldn't be Shintoists, it wouldn't be these other religions of the world and these other peoples. God, Christ, the Bible, would have originated from those who had it, the Jews with the Old Testament and so on. So those are what we call the Semitic nations of today, who are the descendants of Abraham, and even Church of God writers have in some respects a pretty limited way of showing that in terms of ethnicity, uh, like Steve Collins uses SC to depict Isaac. So wherever you find SC in Europe, he says that means those are the children of Isaac. And I think he's correct. But it is small details like that that are hard to trace and become very difficult to know. Now let's consider, before going into this, how we derive that America is the great Babylon of the end time age. Through Scripture. We cannot prove it ethnically. 
because I firmly believe that America is not only Israelite, but we are the tribe of Ephraim, who took the place, the leadership role, as the firstborn. And we'll see that scripture, several scriptures perhaps, that indicate that. But we went over them in proving that this nation was the modern Babylon. Well, how so? If we're Israel, how are we Babylon? What is key here to understand is that those ancient peoples, here and there, Babylonians, Chaldeans, Assyrians, Israelites, whoever may have been those powers of the past, are not necessarily uh, the same ethnic peoples as they were back then. What we see today is different nations playing roles. They are, might be in the role of, like a play act. They might be in the role of Babylonians, though they be Israelites. And I think God supports that very clearly when he says there at the beginning of Ezekiel 16, uh, that you don't look like Israelites to me. What did he, he said? Hittites and one other Gentile nation he named. Your father and your mother look like Gentiles to me. You don't look like Israelites. Because we have taken on the characteristics of the ancient Babylonian Empire. So when the prophecies call us the hammer of the whole earth, and you look at the world today, you see who has been hammering on whomever in the world they wished. Dozens and dozens of nations we've hammered on in the last 50 years particularly. So, without going back through much, much information, you can go through the series again on Babylon if you have questions and who modern Babylon is. <clears throat> and see in Isaiah and in Revelation 18 that God says twice, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And I do believe that this nation has the characteristics of the old world-ruling Babylonian empire, and we're going to fall and then a new leader of Babylon will occur. Babylon means confusion, and it's a worldwide satanic government. And he is going to resurrect it as a world-ruling empire, which we now affectionately call the New World Order. I say affectionately with the sarcasm button pushed. Because as in ancient times, when there were people who aspired to world leadership and rulership, there are the same things going on today. What were Hitler's motives in World War II? Did he, in the back of his mind at least, aspire to world rule? I think so. Uh, there probably is not much doubt about that. He thought the Germans were the master race, and that therefore, being masters, they should master the whole world. But his initial attacks and his initial goals and purposes weren't at all to destroy the United States, were they? He attacked Western Europe, and he attacked Russia, primarily. And that's where he started the thing. He didn't say, I'm going to go attack America and destroy it. And yet we find in Revelation 19, maybe I'll go back there for a moment, in Revelation 19, where it last two verses, that this coming beast power is going to destroy modern Babylon. 
Well, let's see. Is that is that what I wanted? Now, this, this is where they're destroyed, where they are taken and thrown into the, the pit. But, uh, now I lost my thought there. Uh, it's not the scripture that I actually wanted. Anyway, <clears throat> the great Babylon of this end time uh, is America, but that is not what Hitler was trying to attack. Now, if Herbert Armstrong had lived a little earlier, I think he would have ascribed someone else to be the head of the new Holy Roman Empire in a ten-nation dictatorship that would rule the world. Ever hear of a little Frenchman? Called him Napoleon. He aspired to rule the world, and he attacked European nations around him and tried to start an empire then. You have to analyze what you see in terms of what you see around you. So, had God raised up a man then, I'm sure he would have thought Napoleon was that great beast power that would rise up and perhaps would have associated it with the Catholic Church as the beast and the false prophet. Now, Herbert Armstrong saw a militant Germany and he read commentaries written by Protestants that the Catholic Church was the great whore so, that is the position he took. And I think that's a natural assumption. He thought we were further toward the end time than we actually were, for one thing. Looking at his 19-year time cycles and so on, and thinking that 1972 uh, was the key to fleeing, and that by 1975, the three-and-a-half-year tribulation would be over and Christ would be on the earth. But it didn't work out that way, did it? So, clearly... He was wrong about some things, right? <clears throat> Christ isn't here yet, ruling the earth. The millennium has not started. So his understanding, obviously, clearly had some flaws. I guess the question is not, was it flawed, but how much was it flawed, you see? And what he saw happening in Europe, he naturally thought, well, this is the end time. I'm the last one to preach this. So this must be it. Now, I believe we're right at the end now. And I have to look at everything around me, as do you, and say, what does it look like today as opposed to what it looked like in 1914 or in 1940 or 39? Has the stage changed? Are the players the same? Or are there some different players on the stage? Now, let's understand, and we've gone over this before, that America is the great whore of the book of Revelation that will be destroyed. We are the ones who've made the whole earth rich with our economic prowess and our buying of other people's goods and so on. We are the hammer of the earth. If you go through Revelation 18 and Jeremiah 50 and 51, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that the only nation that fits all those characteristics today is the United States. The Catholic Church has not made anybody rich. And they are not currently hammering other nations. Now, they have their own political uh, goals and purposes. 
But the Bible defines Israel as the great whore in Ezekiel 16, and the context of Revelation 18 also shows it. And if we get into Hosea today, we'll see there also that uh, Hosea was instructed to marry a harlot, and that harlot was depicted as what? Israel. So there are three major prophecies that connect the United States or Israel with the great whore of the Bible. It's not the Catholic Church. And in uh, Revelation as well, that great whore is depicted riding the beast in charge, in control, guiding, leading, directing where it goes. Now that will end, and we're getting close to that end, because of the conditions of our country today. And it does say there that they will, that the beast and the false prophet will kill the whore. Now, maybe the whore could be partly the Catholic Church or whatever hybrid religion is coming up. And they're working on that. I don't see the Catholic Church necessarily being the one and only religion that is acceptable to the whole world. Perhaps there is a hybrid of some kind that will come out of it and there will be great signs and wonders as Revelation shows that will turn the heads. Now, will it be based in the Catholic Church? That isn't the subject of the day, so let's not go there and discuss that. But it is clear that we are that great whore that the beast and the false prophet will destroy. The false prophet is, is a religious group or entity, and the great whore is a political entity, a people, Israel. So ethnicity is not necessarily the key. Uh, we can see from many scriptures that the Assyrian is the one who will destroy Israel in the end time. You can go through, well, many, and we'll probably touch on some of them. I did a sermon on that some time back, showing how the Assyrian is involved, and went through all those scriptures, because they said, well, the Chinese are going to destroy us, somebody did. And the Chinese may well be involved. But it is not the Chinese who are going to lead it. It is the Assyrian who will lead it from the north, not from the east, but from the north. That is very, very clear in Scripture. But it is an amalgamation of many, many Gentile nations who will come against Israel. There are quite a few Scriptures that indicate that. So, the Assyrian will lead, but it will be what? The times of the Gentiles, not just the Assyrians, not just the Chinese or anybody else, but the times of the Gentiles as opposed to the Israelites. That period where the Gentile rulership is a rulership of the whole world lasts 42 months once they get it together. Times of the Gentiles is 42 months. Three and a half years, 1260 days, at which time God will send out two witnesses to tell them uh, that this isn't going to work for them, and what they need to do, which they, of course, will not listen to. Now, if you look, the Chaldeans are associated with the Assyrians as well in the Bible, particularly in Jeremiah. He shows how the Chaldeans are a bitter and hasty nation and how they will be involved in our destruction. But you look up Chaldeans, <clears throat> and it's hard to know exactly who ethnically they really are. Uh, they are tied in the Bible, particularly in Jeremiah, with the Babylonians. And yet, in uh, 
what did I wrote that? Isaiah 23:13. They are associated with the Assyrian. I want to turn to that one quickly and read it to you. Uh, Isaiah 23, verse 13. Behold the land of the Chaldeans. This people was not. They weren't anything. They weren't a people, a nation, uh, an entity, geopolitically perhaps, that could be recognized. This people was not till the Assyrian founded it for them that dwell in the wilderness. They set up the towers thereof. They raised up the palaces thereof, and he brought it to ruin. So, the Assyrian is associated also with the Chaldeans. What I see so far, basically, is that the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, the ancient Babylonians, were all, at one time or another, the enemies of, and alliances went back and forth between them, including the Persians and so on, all those Gentile peoples, at one time or another, were enemies of Israel. So, it doesn't really make a huge difference, perhaps, in exactly which nation is derived from what ethnic background today. What is important for us to grasp is who Israel is, what our future is, and that there is going to be, again, an association, an amalgamation, a grouping, a coalition of all these Gentile powers of the past who will again come together to destroy Israel. That's kind of the bottom line right there. Now, exactly who each is, in that context, doesn't really matter, and I don't know that we would not be wasting our time to try to determine exactly where the bounds of the ancient Persians are, or the exact bounds of the ancient Syrians or Assyrians. Because in some cases they are scattered through several countries, and the scholars go bonkers trying to figure out who's who. It's a very difficult study to do, and I don't think there's any clarity to this day from what I've been reading. But, the Assyrian is key, and I want to get on there, because the Bible is very clear that the Assyrian is the one who will come against Israel. And even as we were able to uh, determine that Israel today looks like, acts like, and has taken the place of the world-ruling ancient Babylon, I think we can also determine fairly, fairly surely who the modern Assyrian is, because they will be the leaders of this amalgamation of nations that will come against America shortly. So, let's go into it a bit and see if we can see some clues from Scripture itself, not from scholars, not from worldly publications, but from the Bible, which is what I trust more than anything else by far. Uh, little clues here and there in the Bible may give us some indication. 2 Kings 17, I'll go back to a couple of these background scriptures to begin with. Uh, 2 Kings 17, uh, and beginning in verse 3. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his servant and gave him presents. Now there's an interesting thing. Israel gave the Assyrian presence ways to perhaps help ward off any trouble that might come 
We're going to run into that same thing in Hosea, definitely an end-time prophecy. But the background here shows that that was done as well. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to uh, So, king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria, the northern tribes of Israel, and besieged it three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and then placed them in these cities and so on. And uh, verse 23, end of the verse, so was, this, so was Israel carried away out of their own land to Assyria to this day, the time that he was writing this. So, anciently, the Assyrian invaded and took Israel, and the Assyrian in Isaiah is indicated as being the rod of God's anger. Uh, he's the one that God uses to punish Israel when the time is right. Now, there's where Jonah had a problem. God sent him to Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria at the time, to warn them to repent so God would not have to destroy them. But Jonah wanted Assyria and Nineveh destroyed because he knew that they would come against Israel. So he ran from the job. And God, you know the story, kind of turned him around out there in the sea. And when he came out of the fish, he was ready to go preach. His skin was apparently bleached as white as a shirt uh, from the inside of the fish. So he must have been a terrifying sight when he began to walk into the city of Nineveh. But Jonah knew the history. And he knew God's intent. And he wanted Nineveh and Assyria destroyed and God was not going to do that. Now, Nineveh was the only one that ever really listened to any of the prophets of God. The Assyria. Israel never did. They didn't pay any attention. But Nineveh did, and they repented. It didn't last long. And Assyria still was used as the rod of God's anger. But that's the politics behind Jonah's running. Now, what happened here when he took uh, Israel <coughs> captive there, but the king of Assyria replaced a lot of the Israelites with Babylonians and many other peoples that he put into the land to be there in place of the Israelites whom he took out. And interestingly then, lions began to multiply and to kill those peoples that the king of Assyria had put within Israel, so they complained, and the king of Assyria sent Babylonians to teach those peoples there how to serve the God of the land, which would have been Israel's God, so that they might be delivered from the lions. I find that a very curious and interesting story. There are Gentile kings here and there throughout history who have recognized the God of Israel and recognized the power thereof. Pharaoh did at some point. So did Nebuchadnezzar. They weren't going to worship God, but they had to recognize him for what he was. So that was what he 
did was sent a Babylonian to teach them the, the way to serve God. I imagine that went quite well. Uh, how would you like it if some heathen came in here to try to teach us the Word of God? That's tantamount to what was occurring here. So I, it, it doesn't give a, uh, an answer to exactly what happened there, but I'm sure that didn't work out too well. Second Kings 18, uh, Hezekiah came on the scene, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria. I'm not going to go ahead and read through all of this. It would take a lot of time, and I don't think it's necessary. But the story is that Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria, and in the 14th year of Hezekiah, the king of Assyria defeated and took Israel into captivity. Now, in this case, the record is that Hezekiah gave the Assyrian the treasures of the house of the Eternal, and even cut down the gold doors off the temple and gave them to the king of Assyria. Trying to bribe, trying to keep them from destroying. Now, is that going to come into our land again? Micah 5 makes that very clear, among other scriptures. Is bribing them the answer? Is cutting the gold doors off the temple when they come? The answer. Maybe the temple won't be built when they actually come into the land. It'll be built a little bit later, I think, here in the end time. But would biding them help? That isn't the indication there in Micah 5. There it says we'll send out seven or eight uh, chief men or leaders against the Assyrian, and he will be turned away the way Gideon was able to do it with only 300 men. Uh, where the Assyrians destroyed themselves. Not do really as he should have done, though Hezekiah was essentially a righteous king. The Bible makes that very clear in this story. And yet, uh, there were some issues he had where he didn't do it the way God would have wanted him to. But another thing happened here. Once the Assyrian destroyed Israel and took them captive, he bragged about it. And how he had become the ruler of the whole world, and he was the strongest and the greatest thing that ever was, and so on and so on. And that didn't sit too well with God either. God loved Israel, okay? Israel disobeyed, so God sent someone to take them captive to punish them, so that they would repent and once again be loyal followers of God. And that was God's intent. But the instrument of cruelty that he sent there to take them captive, when they began to brag about how great they were, God was not happy with it. And in this case, he said that the king of Assyria would be chased out and die in his own land. Well, there, virtually overnight, 185,000 Assyrians died at their own hand, basically. And the king escaped and went back to his own land where his sons killed him by the sword. So, you may be used by God to punish Israel, but you better be careful how you go about it and what you do. I say that in light of what is about to happen again. We have nations who are going to amalgamate themselves, associate themselves, and destroy Israel. But shortly thereafter they themselves are going to be killed by the returning Christ. So, history is going to repeat itself here. 
Now, in 2 Kings 20, we find the story of Hezekiah who got sick and then got 15 years extension to his life and so on. And that story is repeated in Isaiah 36 through 39. I'm not going to go to 2 Kings and, and go through it there. Uh, it is pretty clear in, in uh, Isaiah that it is an end-time prophecy, again, even though it was it had a first fulfillment back in the days of that king Hezekiah. And he said that there would be peace at the end of Isaiah 39 in Hezekiah's time, but his sons would be taken as eunuchs into Babylon. Now, I have tied that with the first fulfillment in the end time with the church, where Her- Herbert Armstrong did do a work, and he was essentially a righteous king in a college, a righteous leader that God put there. Now, he had his faults, and he had his difficulties, and he didn't always do things the way God would want, and yet he was a leader that God sent. Now, he also went to the Gentile nations and gave them gifts to get in the door and to tell them about the way of give and get and so on, and we've been over this material before. But here I want to reiterate it because when we get to Hosea, we're going to see some of the things, same things happening here in the end time after Herbert Armstrong is gone on an international level, not just on a church level or a spiritual Israel level. But did not it happen within the church? But after Herbert Armstrong showed the treasures, showed the auditorium, had Gentile concerts and various things in there and gave gifts to all these Gentile kings. Did he not also have a heart attack and almost die and then got about 15 years extended to his life before he actually died? The story is so very, very similar. And then were not, was not the church carried off into Babylon as Zechariah 5 shows. And did we not become, in that sense, eunuchs in Babylon? Because the church no longer had any power. No power to reproduce, no power to produce, no power to do anything. And then began to fall apart very, very quickly and lost all power that it ever had. Now we are just a splintered group of people, groups of people here, there, and everywhere with no power. And even the ones who have amalgamated themselves together in a little bit larger groups are simply powerless to accomplish anything. They're still on radio, or they're still on TV at least. They still print booklets and various things. But you don't see a great movement anywhere, do you? You don't see a lot of people listening and turning to them and telling their friends and their neighbors and their relatives, well, oh, you've got to listen to this. That isn't happening. That isn't happening. So we're like eunuchs. So that prophecy in a spiritual sense has been fulfilled. But the nation now is next up. And we're going to see how this nation has been giving gifts to especially another nation or a couple of nations in the world today. I'm not going to get into that yet. That comes down a little later in the story. But I want to bring it up now in light of what Hezekiah did and what others did as well. Uh, that also is repeated, that thought, in Second Chronicles 28.16, where it says, Ahab gave gifts of the house of the Eternal and the king's house to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, 
but got no help from him. It gave him no relief <laughs> as a result of those. So Ahaz also defiled the temple and took things of the house of the Lord and gave them to the king of Assyria. So this was repeated more than once in ancient Israel's history where they tried to buy the goodwill and favor of a king coming in to destroy them. Where we find the same thing occurring in the end time. There is a curious scripture in Ezra 6.22. I hadn't thought of this one or particularly noticed it, I don't think, in the past. Uh, I didn't turn to it. I may have it marked, my memory being what it is sometimes. Uh, I can think I never heard something before and I turned back and I wrote it in my Bible 10, 20 years ago. But Ezra 6, verse 22. I'll turn back here and see if I've got a note. Says, and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Eternal had made them joyful. And here's the interesting part: and turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. I don't think I, I don't have a note there. I don't think I ever focused on that before. Now we know that Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are a historical template for what is to occur very soon now, as attested by Haggai and Zechariah. That the temple of God will be built again. Now, we know that the Assyrian is coming into our land to destroy us, but this is a very curious half a verse to me, that somehow, some way in there, the Assyrian uh, gave Israel favor. Is there something in the future as the church goes about the work of God that even in the destruction of our nation and the persecution and harassment of the Assyrian upon the peoples of God, and we see that in uh, Daniel 11 for sure, how they will kill many of God's church members called out once. Martyrs who are left behind when going to a place of safety. But I don't know exactly where this fits in, but in going through the concordance on the Assyrian, I just ran across it and said, hey, that's interesting. Don't know what it means, so I won't try to comment further, but is there something in the future where we're given a little bit of favor uh, in building the temple from someone who represents the Assyrian in some way? I don't know. Just, just an interesting scripture that I've never focused on before. Now, let's go to Isaiah 7. I don't know whether I'll get to Hosea today or not, but uh, that's my aim and goal, whether this week or next week. Isaiah 7 and verse 17. Now, this is talking here about Christ uh, coming and becoming known as Emmanuel here in the end days. And it says, verse 17, The Eternal shall bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, of Mitzrayim, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. I think he uses B because of the stings. And there's going to be a great sting from the Assyrian 
And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys and the holes of the rocks and so on. They'll take over, in other words. Uh, chapter 8, verse 4. For before the child that Isaiah was to make, he was to have a child by his wife and name it, uh, spoil the prey, come quickly and so on. But very quickly after some of these events we're talking about here have occurred and we began understanding that Emmanuel was a name for Christ in the end time about 2006, I think it was. And in this case, this child was born to Isaiah and his wife. And it says, in verse 4, it says, Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father, my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria is going to attack and destroy Samaria, the, the tribes of Israel. And it mentions Syria along with it. And it's interesting, uh, Damascus, capital of Syria, it's interesting that there is a warfare going on right now in Syria, partially by people that we have aided and abetted in doing what they're doing, ISIS or IS or whatever you want to call it in the Islamic State. We left war material and weapons and munitions there, and we helped develop them into the force they are today, though we are allegedly fighting against them and bombing them today. Uh, there are a lot of things that go on in terms of subterfuge and and uh, false alarms and lies uh, in the geopolitical world. And there are many of those going on today. It's hard to know exactly who is against who because you don't know what's going on in the back rooms and the secret pacts that are being made to usher in a whole new world order without the United States. We'll discuss that a little bit later on. We are the main thing standing in the way of the new world order, and therefore we have to go. And the scriptures say that we will. Anyway, verse 7, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, and all his glory. And he shall come up over all his channels, and go over all his banks, and shall pass through Judah. He shall overflow and go over, and receive into the neck. And the stretching out of his wings shall fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So, the Assyrian and his associated peoples are going to overflow this land, and original Judah is here. We are in that land in this area, and he will overflow it. But he says, don't fear, God is with us, and not to fear their confederacy or be afraid, but to sanctify God and let Him be our dread and our sanctuary, as it continues to read on down through verse 14. And he says, to bind up the testimony and seal the law among thy disciples, verse 16. <clears throat> so, even though this land is going to be overrun by the Assyrian, there is a people who will serve God, who will be protected as it occurs. That is bound up with the disciples of Christ and of God. I will wait upon the Eternal that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. So the God who turns his face away from this nation is a God who can be found by those who will obey and will serve him. Now let's go on. Uh, chapter 10, I guess I want next. 
verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger, and the staff in their hand is my indignation. I will send him against the hypocritical nation and against the people of my wrath. Will I give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets? Howbeit he means not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is, in, it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. Now you might be able to tie that into various peoples. Napoleon certainly wanted to cut off nations, not a few. How far back do you want to go, Alexander the Great? Hitler, uh, he had those aspirations as well. You can find many peoples throughout history who have wanted to cut off nations, not a few. But the one who is the Assyrian in the end <clears throat> does not think of himself that way. And sure, he thinks of himself as a benevolent, loving person who just understands that really the world would be better off if they were under his jurisdiction and rule. And uh, he's not trying to destroy anything. He's trying to save the world. That will be the way he thinks in his mind. That's the way the people will be taught and propagandized to believe as they follow him into the destruction of this nation and then the end of the rest of the nations of Israel and whoever else gets in his way because they will feel they have a manifest destiny, as have many in the past. So, whether he knows it or not, this individual and this nation, this people, this association, uh, will cut off nations, not a few. Of course, they will then be punished, as verse 12 shows, and on down through this context. Ezekiel 23 goes through and explains Israel's whoredom with the Assyrians and how God, again, will send them into captivity. I'll not go back and read all that, but you can jot Ezekiel 23 down, and uh, you can read that on your own. I don't want to make this into a 20-sermon series uh, in going through all that, but I want to hit some of the more salient points that might help us identify who this ancient Assyrian which has become a modern Assyria, actually is today. Uh, now it says here in Ezekiel 23, I might turn back, well, maybe I'll read a little bit of it. Uh, Ezekiel 23. Uh, let's see, I want specifically verse 28. For thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will deliver you into the hand of them whom you hate, into the hand of them from whom your mind is alienated. So here he's showing how Israel has been in the whoredoms with other nations, and that they will be delivered to the Assyrian, but it is a people whom they have hated and despised and from whom their mind is alienated. I find that a very interesting thing to consider. Do we, as an American people, hate the Germans? They've never come and conquered us. 
They are a part of NATO with us today. They're considered allies by our government and essentially by our people. A lot of Americans go to Germany as tourists and they like the German culture and they like the German people. And in fact, many, many, many people uh, in America came from Germany. There are many of them up in the north central United States through Illinois and Wisconsin and Minnesota and some of those areas. There's uh, some down in South Texas. And they're scattered all over the country. I don't, as an American, let's say, let's, let's just look at ourselves as average Americans. Do we fear, hate, and loathe the Germans as a people? I, I don't think so. You don't hear it on the tongue of people here, there, and everywhere that this is, this is a people that we despise, do you? I don't hear that wherever I go and listen to people that are just United States citizens. I've never felt that they had that kind of a mental attitude for Germany. But this nation coming against us, he says, is the people we hate. It says it is a people from whom our mind is alienated. Now, bear in mind that this also has to be a very strong nation. We'll see some scriptures that indicate that. So, it isn't Lithuania, okay, or Turkey. Those are not powerful nations. It has to be a powerful nation, but it also has to be a nation that we despise and whose beliefs, whose persona, whose political leanings, or whatever, we tend to hate and be alienated from. I'm going to give you a candidate to chew on a little bit. What about communism? What about communism? Now, there is something that all Americans, here, there, and everywhere, have been taught to hate and despise. Because they are against democracy, as we understand democracy. Not that we are one, we're a republic, it's a totally different argument. But we have been taught about the commies and the reds, and we've been alienated from the USSR and Russia, particularly since before and during World War II in the aftermath. Why? Because communist leaders have pounded their shoes, at least allegedly so, in the United Nations, and said they would destroy us. They have made comments like, we will take you over and destroy you without firing a shot. Those quotes and comments are lodged somewhere in the backgrounds of most Americans' thinking. We may not remember all the quotes exactly, or whether it was Gorbachev or Stalin or, or Khrushchev or who said them, but we've heard them. And we, some of us can remember back to Joe McCarthy and where he was accusing that there were communists within the United States government and so on, and he got shouted down, of course. But we have grown up fearing, worrying about, not the Germans, but the Russians. Remember the Cold War? Nuclear threats back and forth all the time? We as a people have been alienated from the USSR and Russia in school, in politics, in the media, wherever, all our lives. 
It has been less since the so-called demise of the USSR. <laughs> but I can certainly remember all those things from my childhood, and adulthood for that matter as well. So, I have a built-in aversion to communism and the USSR led by Russia. Don't you? Don't most Americans? Communism is a, an ideology that we have been taught against. So, they are alienated from our minds, and we hate the idea of a communist takeover of America. That's just part of the fabric of American thinking. Which one fits that better, Germany or Russia? To me, that's kind of a no-brainer when you put it that way. <clears throat> Today, our nation, our government, is infested with communists. They go from the lowest to the highest ranks of power within this nation. They have infiltrated it. They are in offices. The Pentagon, the White House, the Congress are full of them. Whether they be elected officials or whether or not they be uh, just uh, career uh, employees or what. <clears throat> that has come out here and there. There's a lot of that on the Internet today. And indeed, there have been scandals through the decades, if you recall, where we've had Soviet spies who have infiltrated America, have infiltrated our military, have sent our secrets to not only Russia, but more lately in the last two or three decades to China and sold uh, our various secrets, our treasures, to those peoples. You don't hear about it, about the Germans. Now, America has been recently accused of listening in on German conversations. But there are friends and our allies, at least on the surface, today. But it is the communists, whether it be Russian communists or Chinese communists or whatever communists, that we have despised and that we have worried about the most over the years. That is, modern history is fear and worry about the communists, not the Nazis. The Nazis kind of disappeared, didn't they? They still chase one or two down as in his 90s today, but that's not a big deal. They just sort of disappeared. The communism didn't. In fact, it got bigger and bigger and bigger until it supposedly imploded when the USSR came apart and the Berlin Wall came down. We'll have some comments about that a little later on. But first of all, consider this, a people that we hate, who are alienated in our minds. We will find, I think, that our government is selling out. Jeremiah, I've quoted that many times, where it says, Our king will give a handshake to our enemies to... to that come to destroy this modern nation of Babylon. In other words, they are complicit. They are working together for the destruction of the United States. These so-called stupid things you see our government doing are not stupid at all. They're sly. They're deceptive. They're done on purpose to destroy this country. 
the Bible attests to that, that we would shake our hand and sell ourselves out, or at least our government would. <clears throat> Who are we selling ourselves out to? Have you read anything? We're selling ourselves out to the Russians and the Chinese. I'll cite some examples of that either today or next week, probably next week, looking at where we are right now. Jeremiah 5.15. I think it's one that we need to look at a little bit. Jeremiah 5 and verse 15. This nation that comes against us. Lo, I will bring a nation upon you from far. So they're coming from a long way away. They're not next-door neighbors. They're, they're a long way from us. O house of Israel, says the Eternal, <clears throat> it is a mighty nation. I mentioned that before, and there'll be some other references to that as we go on about the Assyria. So it is not a small nation. It is not a nation without a great military. It is a mighty nation. Now, Germany had become, and during World War II, developed as a pretty mighty nation. But they weren't mighty enough to conquer Europe and Britain or the Soviet Union or the United States. Now, this one that's coming against us at this time is going to be strong enough and mighty enough to accomplish the task. But Germany was essentially destroyed militarily and economically in every other way after, during and after World War II. And they have never achieved that kind of power since. Now, they've been the strongest economically of the nations of Europe and in that European Union, but they still don't have any great military might. Now, when I considered over the years that, well, if this is going to be the Germans, I thought, well, if we're going to be destroyed by Germany, they don't have a mighty military. There's no way they could even begin to defeat, if it was really and truly, their military against our military, there's no contest, okay? They don't have much to this day. And I thought the only way that they could destroy us would be if somehow we made a deal with them, our government, and turned our missiles that are pointed at them in Russia and different places where they, where they may be pointed, and turned them around and named them in America. Then they might destroy us if they used our weapons. Otherwise, they can't. So this mighty nation that will come against us has to have the power to do it. Who in the world today has even a possibility of that kind of power, that kind of might? I can think of only two candidates, Russia and China. And they happen to be allies in the BRICS regional configuration. Brazil, Russia, China, and India. South Africa now is with them. Yes. So we have two possible candidates there. A mighty nation from far away, and many scriptures indicate from the north. Not the east, but the north. So it has to be a northern mighty nation. doesn't take too long to kind of sort this out, does it? If you just look at exactly what the Scripture is saying, and then you think of the globe and where who is, and what they're doing, and the kind of power they have, and so on and so forth. 
It is a mighty nation, and it is an ancient nation. So this can't be some upstart, some new entity. This has to be a people that has been around for a while. I don't know exactly what that means. Israel has been around since Abraham, and well, since Jacob, Isaac and Jacob. Uh, the Assyrian has been around a long time, and the Babylonian is ancient empires, the Persians and so on. So, this is a people that I would assume, thinking of this, that goes way back in Israel's history. So, some ethnicity must be involved one way or another, whether you can prove exactly who went where when they migrated out of the Mesopotamian region, uh, I think is, uh, aside from the point, but they go all the way back in Israel's history, I think, is something we have to consider. So whether it be the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, or whoever, in this case it's going to be the Assyrian, but he will be associated with all those other ancient enemies of America, or I mean of Israel, today America and Western Europe. So they've been around a while. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you know not, neither understand what they say. <laughs> so it is going to be a nation whose language is totally foreign to us as well. Does Germany qualify, first of all? Germany is in and among, geographically, the nations or the tribes the ten so-called lost tribes of Israel in Western Europe. Uh, most Europeans speak more than one language. In fact, many Europeans speak English, German, and French, primarily some Italian and other languages as well. But a large portion of Europeans speak German, French, and English. So it is a nation, or it is a language that Europeans, tribes of Israel, are fairly familiar with. In fact, when our national language in this nation was chosen, it was between English and German, and German came within a whisker of becoming our national language. Most Americans have at least a smattering of a little German. We don't have much. But it's far more familiar than Russian, is it not? I, I, the only word, Russian word I can think of is yet. About it. But I know quite a few German words. And I've been there and was able to order beer and food. So I don't know much German, but it's not completely foreign to me like Russian is. I'd be totally lost there. I don't even know how to say vodka over there. I don't think most Americans do. Let's, let's, say, let's put it this way. I think a language that is totally foreign to us and that we don't understand would come a lot closer to being Russian or Chinese than it would German among Israelites, particularly those tribes that are in Europe. So, uh, we, we may not narrow it down totally by that one, but if you take mighty nations... Uh, you got to throw the North in there. That makes Russia a pretty good candidate. It makes China less of one, even though they come somewhat North, but they're mostly East and South, and Russia comes 
in even uh, as it goes uh, east above China for the most part. So it's further north than China. And their language is totally foreign to us. Well, I'm about out of time. And I was going to go get to Hosea next, but Hosea is going to require some time because there are a lot of clues in the book of Hosea. You might look at it through this next week uh, because it does address the Assyrian a great deal and it addresses this nation of Ephraim in relationship to the end-time Assyrian. And I found uh, quite a few clues in there about who the Assyrian might be. I think you already see where I'm leaning with this based on what we've seen so far. But I think we're going to see a whole lot more. So instead of getting into Hosea, just dipping my toe in it and then having to run, I think I'll just stop right here. And God willing, we'll approach that book next week.